Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading, for our sermon this morning. We're continuing our series, our firm foundation, and we are finishing up Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And we're also going to look at verse 31. Romans 8. We're looking specifically at verses 30 and 31 this morning, but for context, I'm going to back up to verse 28 and read to 31. So if you will please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is God's holy word for us, his people, beginning in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is God's holy inspired scripture for us. Father, we ask that you would be with us as we look to your word, that you would be our teacher, that you would speak to us, that I would fade away, and that your word of truth would go forth. And that's what we would take away from this service. Speak, O Lord, you have the words of eternal life, and may they go down deep in our hearts and change us into the people you've called us to be. For your name's sake and for your glory we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so this morning, we are coming to the end of verse 30, Romans 8, 30. And what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks in this passage is what theologians have called the golden chain. Consider these links we have already looked at. Predestination. We are predestined in eternity past to the work of God's grace in our lives now and to His future glory when we stand before Christ in the eternal state that is to come, face to glorious face with our risen Lord Jesus. Predestination takes us from eternity past, predestines us for the work of God's grace now and for the future glory that is to come. The second link in this chain is our call. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Our calling. And remember the order. It comes after predestination, but it comes before our justification. And that means the call causes us to be born again. It is God's call that grants us repentance and that creates saving faith in our souls and brings us from spiritual life into, from spiritual death into spiritual life in union with Jesus. 
The next link we looked at last week, justification. We said this is the article on which the church stands or falls. This is the most important one. If you could take all the doctrines we've been looking at and you said, Lord, what's the most important for our firm foundation? The reformers gave a very clear answer and they said it is justification. How am I right with God? What right do I have to go to heaven? How do I find the gracious God of Scripture? Justification is the answer to that question. And notice justification in the order in verse 30. It comes after we're called, but it comes before the last link, glorification. And that means something very important. Justification coming after the call, but before glorification means that before we take the first step in the Christian life, before we have obeyed anything, we are at that moment of justification. We are forgiven of all of our sins. And not just the ones you committed before you got justified. Oh, no. You are forgiven of all the sins that you are ever going to commit. You are justified from all sin so that in Jesus Christ, you are from that moment and forevermore perfectly righteous, just like Jesus. Permanently, perfectly forgiven and righteous in God's sight. All the charges of sin that could ever be lodged against you, could ever be filed in the court against you, are dropped. We are declared perfectly righteous before the throne of God's justice in Christ. All our condemnation is pardoned. And why? How can God do this? How can this become true of us? It's only in Christ. It's only because His blood and His righteousness are given to you as a free gift. A gift you did not earn. A gift He performs and gives to you and that you can only receive by faith. Faith alone in Christ alone is how you get a gracious God. You can't bring any of your works to God in your hands if your hands are full of your own works or your own reasons for why God should let you into heaven, why God should forgive you, you don't have the ability to take the gift He's giving you. Your hands are full. You have to lay it down and reach out with both hands, the empty hand of faith, and receive the atoning blood and the perfect righteousness of Jesus. That's how you get justified. And that happens before glorification. That happens before you have obeyed the very first commandment. Before you've taken one step in the Christian life, you are justified. That was last week. This morning, we come to the final link in this chain. This glorious golden chain. The final link is glorification. Verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, there are no dropouts. 
in the golden chain. No one can, if you're wrapped in this chain, no one can slip through and fall out. If you have been predestined, you will be called. And if you are called, you will be justified. And if you are justified, you will be glorified. And that's why this golden chain is wrapped around God's elect. It starts with election, goes to predestination, and follows through time, right through your life, binding you to the Lord, taking you to glory. No dropouts. So I want us to dig in a little bit to this word, glorification. And part of what we've already looked at earlier, when we looked at verse 29 a couple of weeks ago, and I want to go a little more in depth. This is the link, glorification, that finishes the job. It finishes God's work of salvation. It takes us into eternity. Glorification is the link in the chain that takes us from our present salvation that we, that we have and possess now in Christ and takes us to the last day, to future glory. Our glorification begins from the moment of justification and it continues as an ongoing process, a, prog- a progressive work of God's free grace that culminates ultimately in our resurrection on the last day. Glorification has already begun. Glorification and justification are not the same thing. Justification happens in a moment when you're declared righteous. But then you have to start doing something. Now there's a Christian life to live. Now there's all these commandments we have to obey. Now there's this thing called walking with the Lord, undergoing sanctification, growing in holiness. That's the Christian life, and that's where glorification starts. It starts after we're justified. It's not part of your justification, and that's absolutely vital. None of your good deeds, none of your holiness, none of your Christian life, nothing but faith is how you are justified. But once you're justified... God isn't finished with you, Christian. Now it's time to undergo this process of sanctification. And another word in Paul for sanctification is glorification. Glorification has already begun once you come to Christ. But it is not yet finished. And that's the framework of the Christian life we have to live with. It's already begun and it's not yet finished. And we talk about this in theology. It's the already and the not yet. There's an already side to our Christian lives, and there's a not yet. There's something still to come. Already and not yet. We are already fully saved in Christ by faith. But we are not yet finally saved. In other words, God has begun a great work in us. But he has not yet finished what he started. And you and I live in the overlap of the already and the not yet. You look back in your life. You look back at your salvation that happened earlier in your life. And where you are now, you look forward to the glory that is to come to heaven. To the resurrection of the body in a new heavens and a new earth. And we live right in the middle of those two great things. Our salvation that happened in the past. 
our future glory that is to come, and we're living in the middle as we journey towards our inheritance. We're like the Israelites in the wilderness, right? The Israelites in the wilderness, they looked back to the Exodus and said, look, God already freed us from Egypt. We're not in Egypt anymore. He freed us. Ten plagues, crossing the Red Sea, that that was salvation. That happened. But they hadn't reached the promised land yet. They're still marching on to Zion. They're still traveling on to that inheritance, that land flowing with milk and honey that was laid out for them. And they were in the middle, in the overlap, already out of Egypt, not yet in Canaan. And that's how we live. We're already freed from our sin, already saved, already justified, already on our way to the promised land. But we haven't got there yet. We're journeying on. We're walking to the promised land. That's the framework for the Christian life. And that's our framework for the sermon this morning. As we look at glorification, we're going to look at those three moments And here are our three points. Glory returned, glory renewed, and glory revealed. We're talking about glorification. And we're looking at the glory that happened in the past, the glory we experience now, and the glory that is to come. That's where we're going. So, the first, the return of glory. The Jews of Paul's day believed that they had a special calling as God's people. The Jews believed they had a special calling to bring salvation to the nations. Here's how it worked. Here was the story that the Israelites in Paul's day lived with. First, Adam had sinned and plunged the world into the corruption and death of the fall. Second, then all nations rebelled against God at the Tower of Babel, and they went astray. He scattered them. After that, God called Abraham. He called Abraham with this specific purpose. Abraham was called to undo what Adam had done. Where Adam had failed, God called Abraham to do what Adam did not do. To undo, to reverse, to turn back the clock on what Adam had done. You can tell we're just tracking with Genesis. right? Creation and sin, next Tower of Babel, then the call of Abraham. We're just tracking with the storyline in Genesis so far. After God called Abraham, He made a covenant with Abraham. That his descendants would bring God's blessings to the nations. Remember that in Genesis? Where God says, in you, Abraham, and in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. And later, after the Exodus, God made a covenant with Israel through Moses. And called them, the people of Israel, the children of Abraham. He called them to be the servant of the Lord. To bring light and salvation to those lost nations that have been scattered at the Tower of Babel. And through Israel, all creation will be restored. That's what the Jews believed. That's the storyline they inhabited in their everyday life. 
in the days of Paul. But there was a problem. There was a big problem, and all Jews of that time, especially Paul and Jesus, fully understood this problem. All the nations have gone astray, and Israel is supposed to be that light, the light of the world, shining on a hill, bringing the light and life of God's salvation to those lost nations. But what happened? Israel ended up being part of the problem. Israel, just like all the other nations, sinned and rebelled and turned from the Lord. Israel was part of the problem. The Jews need a Savior just as much as those lost old pagan Gentiles. That was the hard truth that all the different groups and camps in Judaism of Paul's day was struggling with. This is a big problem. How do we solve it? Israel has turned from the Lord and they were sent into exile. Nebuchadnezzar came through and wiped out Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and Israel itself, just like all those nations at the Tower of Babel, even Israel got scattered among the nations. And the whole plan of calling Abraham and calling God's people to be the light of the world, the whole plan seemed to have totally gone to nothing. The whole thing was seemed like it was falling apart. And so here's what Israel was hoping for. Here's what the Jews were hoping for in Paul's day. They recognized that the glory of the Lord had departed from the temple. In Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11, Ezekiel describes what happened just before the Babylonians came in and took out the temple. He had a vision and the glory of the Lord that had filled that temple was lifted up. Above the temple. And he saw God's glory hover above the temple. Not inside it. And then he watched as the glory of God departed the temple. Went out to the, through the east gate towards the Mount of Olives. And out of Jerusalem. The spirit of God that dwelt in the temple. His glory that was his presence among his people. Departed. God was through dwelling among Israel. The glory of the Lord had departed from the temple. And thus the temple was destroyed and the people were scattered and the Jews of the exile hoped and prayed for these three things. They prayed, Lord, let us return from exile to the land. O Lord, please let us rebuild the temple and then, O Lord, please let your glory return to the temple. O Lord, let your glory return to the temple. And they prayed things like this. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. That her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
Oh, they were longing. Oh, may all the uneven roads that lead to Israel, the mountain roads and the, and the roads to the valley, let all the mountains be leveled and let all the valleys come up so it's all a plain. It's all one level ground, one highway, straight back into Jerusalem for God to come back. They wanted Yahweh to come back to Zion. They longed for His glory to come back to Zion. This is what they were hoping for in Paul's day. The people had seen two of those prayers answered. They were back in the land. And the temple had been rebuilt. But the glory had not yet returned. The glory of God had not yet returned. And so Jews were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the king the son of David, the Savior who was to come, and he would bring God's Spirit back to the temple, and he would free Israel from the captivity to the Romans, and he would lead Israel back on track to that original plan to fulfill its calling, to bring salvation to the nations, to bring the blessing of Abraham to the ends of the earth. They were looking for the Messiah to do this. And here's the point. Paul came along into that situation and he said, I have good news. I have gospel for you. Good news. God has fulfilled those promises and he has answered those prayers and he has done so in Christ. The Messiah has come. It's Jesus and he is the fulfillment of those prayers. This is the deep structure of Romans. This is, when I first saw this, this was amazing. Paul has taken that story I just walked us through, and he's woven it into the very structure of the book of Romans to show us how God has fulfilled it. Remember the story. Adam has sinned, so Abraham comes along to undo what Adam did. And then God says, through Abraham, his salvation is going to come to all the nations. So what does Paul do in Romans? Well, just look at the order of the book. Paul describes what that sin is like, the sin of Adam. He describes the sin in chapters 1 and 2 and most of 3. And then he says at the end of chapter 3, Christ has come to, to save us, to fulfill these promises. And then he shows you how he's done it. Chapter 4 is about Abraham. And how Christ fulfills the promises to Abraham. Chapter 5 is about Christ and Adam. Abraham's supposed to undo what Adam did. And through Jesus, Paul says, Christ has undone what Adam did. Chapter 5. Then, chapter 6. We were in bondage to sin, just like the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt. We were enslaved to sin, but God has set us free. Chapter 6. Chapter 7, we come to the law. Israel, when they left Egypt, they then received the law. And then chapter 8, we follow the Spirit on to our inheritance. And that's where we are today, chapter 8. You see, that's the deep structure of Romans, is that God is fulfilling His promises. It's following that Genesis-Exodus storyline and showing us how it is fulfilled. Because we, when we came out of our sin, we went through the waters of baptism, just like the Israelites went through the waters 
of the Red Sea. And then they received the law and they followed the Spirit through the wilderness to their inheritance. And we are doing what they did, freed from sin, passing through the water of baptism. We have a new relationship with God's law and now we're following His Spirit to our glorious inheritance. Christ has fulfilled what the Jews had prayed for God to do. And that means that last prayer that Paul, that I mentioned earlier, Jews praying for God's glory to come back to the temple. How was that fulfilled in Christ? That was fulfilled in Christ every time someone comes to Christ and believes. The glory of God is returning to the temple every time someone bows the knee to Jesus. Because what happens is, when you get saved, He gives you His Holy Spirit. His presence returns to the temple. And that's why the New Testament describes us as the temple of the Lord. They were looking for God to come back to a physical temple in Jerusalem. And instead, Jesus says, I will give you the true fulfillment. God's glory coming back to the temple was just a signpost. It's just a picture pointing you on to the reality which is the Holy Spirit, not just dwelling in some temple, but dwelling in you, dwelling in his people. Paul says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. God has fulfilled the promise of sending His Spirit back to His people by making us into God's temple. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Or Ephesians 2, he says, In Christ, the whole structure of the church is being joined together, and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, that's temple language, a dwelling place of God where his glory comes down upon us. His glory returns by making us his temple. And when you look back on your salvation, that's what happened to you. You were justified by faith alone, and then God poured out his Holy Spirit on you, and he sealed you. That means he claimed you as his own and he marked you out with a seal. This is my child. This one belongs to me. And you were marked with that spirit as a guarantee that you will be saved in the end. God's spirit is the guarantee. So search your hearts, Christian. If you you know that the spirit of Christ lives in you, if you feel the Spirit with you, if you believe the gospel and you walk with the Lord, you have the Holy Spirit. 
And that's the down payment of the resurrection that is to come. God's Spirit is with you. And if you're following the Spirit, you know you have been sealed for the day of redemption. It's God's down payment. And at the end, He will come back and finish what He started. We look back on that glorious event where God gives us His Spirit. His presence. His glory. We're glorified. We're talking about glorification. It starts when He gives you His Holy Spirit and marks you out as His own. He comes to dwell within us, to be with us, to lead and guide us. That's the first point. Glory returned. The fulfillment of the promise to give us the Spirit. And now the glory renewed. Point two. Because we are God's holy temple... We are called to be holy, to be a pure house for God's dwelling. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen to what Paul says. He says, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. And be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And this is the next aspect of glorification. This is the aspect we're undergoing every day in our lives since we've been saved. It's happening to you right now. (laughs) Being here, worshiping with your fellow believers, hearing the Word of God read and preached, you are undergoing this process of glorification right now. (laughs) How does it feel? God is working on you even now. Every time you come and you pray with fellow believers and you worship, every time you come in here and hear the Word of God read and you hear it preached, might be a great sermon, might be a lousy sermon, but as long as it's God's truth coming out, I'll work hard at not being lousy. That's, that's on me. If it's, if it's a bad sermon... That comes back on me. But if you still don't get anything out of it, that's on you. Because it's still God's Word. And it's still truth. And it's still supposed to do its work on you. And what's it supposed to do? It's supposed to be part of your glorification. Part of your becoming holy. God's Spirit dwells in you. He fills you every day with His presence. And He expects you to walk in step with His Spirit. To really be in His presence. To follow the Spirit like the Israelites in the wilderness. Following that Spirit on to your inheritance. This is the process of sanctification. This is that present and continuous aspect of glorification. You are being conformed into the image of Christ. Just like we talked about before. With sanctification, back in chapter 8, verse 29. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. 
And part of the Spirit's job is not just to help you be in God's presence all the time. The idea is being God's presence and beholding His glory will begin to change you into that image. You don't just have God's glory to brag about or to take for granted. You don't just have His glorious presence and Spirit dwelling with you for no purpose. The purpose is that glorious presence, that Spirit that dwells with you, is supposed to make you become in your heart, in your mind, and in your life what Christ is. To be an image that resembles and reflects Him. You are to become holy in the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's our sanctification. Growing in holiness. Beholding God's glory. There's an amazing passage that Paul Paul has this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3. Paul says, beginning in verse 12, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. He's referring to this odd little bit in Exodus where Moses goes into the tabernacle to be in God's presence and to speak with him. And then he would come out and tell the Israelites what God said. But Exodus says his face would be glowing when he came out. And they couldn't look at his face. It was terrifying. Really odd verse. And so what Moses would do is he would put a veil over his face so they, so they couldn't see that brightness shining. He could put on a veil and then, they could, and then he would speak to them through a veil. And Paul says... In verse 14, the minds of the Israelites are hardened to this day because when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil, he says, remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. He's saying when Jews read the Old Testament, they can't see the glory of Christ in it because they still have that old veil of Moses over their face and they can't see clearly through that veil They can't see Christ. And he says, Christ, though, takes away that veil so that we can see him clearly. He says this in verse 16, 2 Corinthians 3, 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And here's what happens. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Christian, how do you get sanctification? This is the bottom line of how we grow in holiness. How do you grow in your relationship with Christ? How do you get more holy, more righteous, more obedient, more godly? It comes not from straining and grinding and trying to just, oh, I just grit my teeth and I've got to 
gut it out and make myself holy. No. It comes from just looking at Christ. This says, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into that image. A degree at a time, from glory to glory. And as we behold Christ, as we focus on Him, as we give Him our attention, we become more like Him. So what are you looking at today? What do you have your eyes set on? What are the things that captivate your gaze? Paul says in Colossians, lift your eyes from the things of this world up to the right hand of God where Christ is seated. He is your glory. And when, you, and when He returns, you will appear in glory with Him. Set your minds on things above. Get them off of this world that distracts. Open up the Scriptures and look hard for Christ. Look for the glory in His character. Look for the glory in His face. Look for the glory in His perfect obedience to the Father. Look at the glory of Him going to the cross for your sin and not complaining. And not getting bitter and cursing. Look at the glory and perfection of your Savior. Gaze upon Him. Open these scriptures and see His beautiful character. His perfect heavenly virtue. His perfect love. His absolute goodness. The way He forgives. The way He lives. The way He heals and reaches and touches. Look at His compassion. Look at His tenderness. His goodness. His faithfulness. Look at your Savior. Gaze upon the glory of His face. Who He is and what He's done for you. That's how you become more like Him. You look at Him and you become what you see. All of a sudden, it becomes a mirror. and You can begin to see yourself reflecting more of your Savior. Look upon Jesus. Look upon Jesus. The glory of God is in His face. And that takes us to our last point. We've seen how the glory has returned when we we were given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we've seen the glory renewed, how the glory of God is renewing us from one degree of glory to the next by looking at Christ. And now finally, the glory that is to come, glory revealed. This process of walking by the Spirit of beholding the glory of Christ, of being transformed more and more into His glorious image, dying to sin and becoming more and more holy as a pure dwelling for God's Spirit, this process will one day be finished. When the Lord Jesus returns, Christian, when when you stand before Him, your glorification will be complete. It will be finished. This is what 1 John 3 says will happen to you. Beloved, we are God's children now. Here comes the already and the not yet that I I mentioned earlier. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is.
You look at the face of Christ through the scriptures. And you behold his glory and his majesty as much as the spirit's able to help you do that in this life. But it's just a tiny glimpse. It's just cracking open the door only a tad and looking through that little sliver on the other side. Single ray of glory coming through, shining on you. But one day, you will see face to face. And when he comes again, you'll no longer be looking at the face of Christ and beholding his glory through the scriptures. You'll be able to see with your own eyes. And that vision will absolutely transform you forever. To see the transfigured, risen, reigning Christ. The light and life of eternity, of immortal, infinite life. Shining out from his face, flooding your soul, banishing even the slightest flicker of a desire for sin. You will be absolutely transformed. And you will have immortal life with Christ. You will be fully glorified through his glory. That's what you have to look forward to. The revelation of his glory. Then your glorification will be finished. Christians, this is the amazing hope that we have in Christ. This is the amazing hope we have in the golden chain. What God started in eternity past with predestination, he will bring it to completion in eternity future with our glorification. And this should give us such tremendous comfort and confidence in our suffering. And that ultimately is what the context is about in Romans 8. All things work together for good, 8.28. That's about even the bad things in life, even the hardships, even the trials and circumstances. In the midst of whatever life throws at us, we can have comfort and confidence that it's all going according to God's sovereign plan. That we are wrapped in this chain forever and that we can have such tremendous comfort and confidence in the midst of our suffering, knowing that nothing that comes against us can prevail because God is sovereign and he is good and he is yours. That's what Paul says in 831. What then shall we say to these things? What should your response be, Christian, to the golden chain? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you, nothing in creation can defeat or destroy you. So march on to your inheritance, Christian. Walk by the Spirit. Keep your eyes on Christ. Look for that glory that is to come. Follow the Spirit's lead as you journey on to your eternal home. Your inheritance is assured. Cling to Christ. Lean on the Spirit and march on. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that it is powerful to give us a glimpse of our Savior. Oh, open our eyes, Lord, to see the beauty of our Lord. Help us, Lord, to focus upon Him. 
to not give our devotion to other things that would take us away from you. There are many things in life we need to focus on, Lord. Many of them are good and right. Help us, though, Lord. Help us to set our minds on Christ above all things. That he would be the center of our vision. That he would be the one we gaze upon. And in his image we are conformed. There are many images, false images, idols in this world that want us to be conformed into their image. Protect us from idols, Lord. And may we gaze upon Christ. Give us a fresh touch from your spirit. And oh, may we be filled with a sense and wonder of your presence within us. Leading us on. Making us holy. May we be pure temples, Lord. May your spirit march on ahead. And may we follow. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.